Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, June 30th. We begin with a look at the state of Calgary's economy as we move through stage two of the provincial reopening plan. We speak with Sandeep Lally, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Next, we discuss the unintended consequences of surgery delays resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic and closures. We hear details of a new study conducted by Western University. Air Canada and WestJet have announced the end of their social distancing policies when it comes to seating on their planes. We look at the timing of the decision and get reaction from an air passenger rights advocate. Some U.S. states have now ramped up previously loosened restrictions when it comes to social distancing. This in response to a dramatic increase in the number of COVID-19 cases. We get the latest from Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. And finally, Calgary Ensemble Rev 52 has created a full virtual performance of O Canada to celebrate our nation's birthday. We catch up with the artistic director of Rev 52 to hear more about this amazing version of our anthem. 8-11 on the morning news. More businesses are open in Calgary, and by all accounts, Calgarians are feeling better about being out and visiting local shops and businesses. How are businesses in our city and the owners of those businesses feeling? To find out, we're joined by Sandeep Lally, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Good morning to you, Sandeep. Good morning, Andrew. Well, it's been a, a couple of weeks since we've caught up, so we uh, want to, you know, hear the latest. And, and what are you hearing as you take a temperature of the city when it comes to uh, city business owners? Absolutely. We've got some stats um, about the impact of COVID on Calgary businesses uh, through a survey that was done over the last month into um, with Stats Canada. And so... 69% of the businesses here in Calgary have experienced a decrease in demand or products and services, and 70% continue to be negatively impacted by the social, uh, social distancing. Overall, though, um, there is employment impact, as we know. So 45% of the, the workforce is on uh, reduced hours or shifts that are working in you know, retail establishments and restaurants. 40% have been laid off, and 27% um, salaries and wages have been rolled back. So increasingly, as you said, like you know, we're getting consumer confidence back, um, largely because our businesses have added new ways of interacting or selling to customers, is, is what, how we found out on the survey. And then virtual connections, uh, continuing to foster business development, and then increasing through e-commerce or through boutique shopping or Zoom uh you know, special Zoom calls and things like that. So businesses have figured out a way to reach their customers um, through e-commerce and electronics. So, but I do think like as the survey has told us here, moving forward though, you know, 33% are still unsure how they're going to be operating um, with, um, without a prop, without revenue, but also how do we get our gross margin and our uh, cash flow going? So the restaurants that have opened, for example, have said that, you know, we're open, but we're not profitable. And it's, again, that, you know, 50, the social distancing piece, even though they don't have capacity constraints. So, Sandeep, how do you as a chamber continue to help the employees, the business owners themselves? What do you do? What do you provide for them? And, and I mean, is it, a, is it can it ever be enough, really? Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, so we've got our powering up toolkit. You know, we continue talking to the businesses. We have a CEO peer mentoring program so they can learn off other CEOs. Uh, we have, um, you know, we had two of our businesses here in Calgary qualify for a $10,000 grant that was put together by the Canadian Chamber and Salesforce. We're going to be rolling out a digital platform with a local company here 
to be able to do e-commerce with ease. So some of the businesses weren't set up for a touchless um, e-commerce type of approach. So those are the kinds of things we're going to continue to do. In the fall, we're going to be focusing on the resiliency of businesses and, and establishing that. All, all of that to say that it is going to take about 18 to 24 months. It is going to be really the ingenuity of our entrepreneurs with the programs and the supports that we're putting together along with other partners um, like Western Economic Development. The federal government has put forward just this week and um, the Alberta government announced a $5,000 uh, application-based grant for small and mid-sized businesses. So there's those pockets that are coming to stabilize, continue to stabilize. But, you know, that fall bill, the October bills around, you know, utilities and property tax, those that cash crunch is still, uh, still there because many of them can't take on additional debt. Sandeep, yesterday the UCP unveiled their uh, jumpstart to, to the economy. Uh, a plan that was heavy on uh, job creation. I'm wondering from a chamber perspective, uh, what do you think of, uh, of the benefits uh, for this plan for Calgary? Can you see the benefits? Yeah, it was really good to see the focus on internal economic development and external economic development. I think they hit the root of the issue, which has been the lack of economic development within our cities, within our province. And so addressing that and us, uh, the Calgary Chamber, along with the Edmonton Chamber, had asked, and put forward a plan for you know, long-term sustainable job growth with having innovation at the heart of it. And so we saw that here in the framework. Granted, the framework's light on details, but the, the point is it's a framework. And it's exactly what we needed around this time of June as businesses look to go, am I in or am I not in? You know, And so to create jobs with an innovation employment job grant, which is $60 million, $175 million for Alberta Enterprise Corp., and largely the corporate tax reduction is, you know, it's not going to lead to jobs tomorrow, but in the long game strategy, it is going to lead towards further economic growth and attraction. It is one of the key levers that external economic development looks for. And then also it helps with the with growing from within as well. I think the part that we really also liked was the fact that they're talking about diversification openly. The key here is going to be how do this, how does it get implemented, the execution of this plan. You know, you can't have the same approach and the same people doing it. So they're setting up Investment Alberta, for example, to take a different approach at external economic development, which I think is all, all really good because it helps us compete in the capital markets. But for businesses here to see this framework and see that there's internal job growth potential and external job growth potential, leading towards access to more customers and more um, capital uh, investment through venture capital or institution funds was a good framework. But like I say, it'll be in the execution of it and the implementation. But at the end of the day, it came at the right time. As we go into the long weekend, as we kind of deliberate over, holy smokes, how did that six months go? You know, and how am I going to, what am I seeing through the next 18? It was a good shot in the arm of adrenaline to say, yeah, you know what? We've got some certainty from our government to move forward. Thanks, Sandeepa. We'll continue to check in with you as the economy continues to open up and uh, keep getting updates. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Sue, and uh, happy uh, Canada Day to both of you. And happy happy Canada Day to you, too. That is Sandeep Lally, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. 
7.09 now. And as COVID-19 infections start to ramp up, a lot of surgeries were put on hold. And these delays left patients wondering whether the lack of testing, whether the lack of medical procedures was making a difference in their care. We're discussing the consequences with Associate Professor of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at Western University, Dr. Janet Martin. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So in your opinion, what are some of the unintended consequences uh, of what we put off for so long during the three months of the pandemic? Right. For sure, there are some unintended consequences of having delayed surgery. And surgery uh, delays has been one of the focus areas of of research that I've been involved in in a global um, sense. So we did a COVID surge study that took a look at the impact of COVID-19 during the peak period on delays of surgery. And we found that an estimated 28.4 million surgeries, elective surgeries, were delayed around the world. About, yes, approximately 400,000 of those um, happened in Canada alone. So that's quite an impact on elective surgery. And we know that that has knock-on effects in terms of, of impact on patients' health, quality of life. And we've heard a number of patient stories as well in, in that regard. Now, surgeries are not the only thing that have been impacted. Other routine aspects of care that tend to be elective, i.e. not emergent, not emergency, maybe not urgent, have also had to be delayed. And all of this now is, is an ongoing area of research for many of us to take a look at what happened when we had to basically shut down our routine aspects of care in order to privilege the management of COVID so that COVID didn't overwhelm our whole system and cause more excess deaths than even could have been prevented by our continuing our usual routine aspects of care. Dr. Martin, you mentioned the millions across the globe being delayed when it comes to these surgeries uh, due to the impact of the uh, pandemic. Uh, in our nation, can we put a number or estimate on how many surgeries in Canada? And, and do we have any idea when we might get caught up? Is there any kind of a timeline? Right. It's a great question. So in Canada, we estimate that, that um, the, the extent of the elective surgery cancellations was 395,000. And that was an estimate drawn just from the peak COVID period of approximately 12 weeks throughout March, April, and May. And so it is a large number. And and because of that, we also took a look at what's it going to take in order to manage this backlog and clear the backlog. And when we took a look at uh, how many surgeries we were doing pre-COVID and the throughput, we figure that even if we could now get back to baseline plus a 10% excess capacity to our throughput for surgery, it would still require 90 weeks, so the better part of a year and a half, in order to be able to clear that backlog. And doctor, are you concerned as a medical professional that, you know, with, for obviously patient care, but for trying to rush some of these things through, or is, does that worry you? Absolutely. I have some concern, but I, I feel better now that we have completed some of these large global studies to take a look at the characteristics 
of COVID and the interaction that it has on surgical patients and their outcomes. So this, I think, is a really important point to bring forward. And the reason why I feel better now than I did a month or two ago is because we just have a lot more information from these studies that we didn't have before. So now we actually have information to make informed decisions about when the benefit of surgery immediately while COVID is circulating is going to be of more benefit than delaying that particular surgery. So in in medicine and in healthcare, it's always about weighing benefits versus risks of one action versus the other. So immediate surgery versus delaying that surgery. So now we have, like never before, so we've published a study of, of what is the impact of COVID on patients who end up undergoing surgery who already had COVID in the near term just prior to surgery or who developed COVID in the 30 days after surgery. And what we found was that patients who underwent surgery with COVID on board or soon after surgery had a much worse outcome. Mm. So they were uh, likely to have um, pneumonia complications or other pulmonary complications such as needing um, mechanical ventilation. So one in two patients who underwent surgery with COVID diagnosis just prior to surgery or in the 30 days after required uh, mechanical ventilation or had serious pulmonary complications. And more than that, um, and, and quite sadly, we found that almost one in four of them died. So we found a 24% mortality rate in patients who underwent surgery with COVID on board. So those are implications which were essential to be to to be studying before we actually opened up our, our systems again to elective surgery during this time of COVID. Now we have the information that's required in order to be able to make those decisions safely and weigh the benefits versus risks. Does this research touch uh, in any way on the outlook of the patient from those patients who aren't comfortable, who might get the phone call that their elective surgery is going to go ahead and they decline? Is, is that uh, something you folks looked at? We, that's a great question. We didn't look at the patient response to having this information and decision and how it impacts on their decision, but I think that would be an excellent study to do. We certainly have now developed patient education, patient information, and shared decision-making tools so that we can lay out all of this information and take a look at the patient's characteristics. So we have in our study over 1,100 patients uh, that we published just a month ago. And we were able to, t- to take a look at patients who were more likely to do worse and patients who were more likely to do better based on age, sex, as well as baseline um, comorbidities, whether or not they had other um, risk factors on board, and also based on the type of surgery that they were undergoing. And now we have a lot more detail on that upcoming in uh, um, future publications coming out soon that will give very detailed information on the patient level risks so that they can be making that decision based on what they know about themselves along with their surgical team in order to decide whether or not the near term 
or delay is is a better course of action. Now that, to be clear, this is for patients who have COVID, um, who were diagnosed with it within a week before surgery, or who were maybe exposed to it even in the hospital and developed it in the month after. So now we're actually creating systems of care that protect our patients and really make sure that they're not going to be exposed during their um, surgical journey. We thank you so much for joining us and sharing your findings this morning, doctor. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. That's Dr. Janet Martin, Associate Prof of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at Western University. 719 on the morning news. The country's two largest airlines are ending their onboard seat distancing policies starting tomorrow which is raising even more health concerns amid a pandemic that has devastated the travel industry. We're joined by airline passenger rights advocate Gabber Lukacs. Good morning, Gabber. Good morning. So uh, Transport Canada is recommending spacing among passengers, but it's not mandatory. So is this simply a financial move by both Air Canada and WestJet? Air Canada and WestJet are playing Russian roulette with passengers' lives. They are putting the safety of the passengers, their health, and the safety and health of those at the destination behind their own private financial interests. It's reprehensible. I mean, it's been a difficult ride for airlines. We know that. It's been a, a, a terrible, you know, the travel industry has just really gone down the toilet. But to do this, it, you're right. I mean, it just seems it's far too soon for most Canadians, I suspect for, for many around the world. So there's, but there's nothing we can do as passengers, is there? There is a lot we can do. Oh, okay. First of all, we, we, we can choose not to travel. Okay, there's that. We can vote with our wallets. We can vote with our feet. And we can also and should also be placing calls to our members of parliament. They are our federal representatives, and they should be hearing an earful from us that this is absolutely dangerous. And uh, it should put passengers' lives at risk. Passengers who are already booked on those flights, they are probably in the most difficult situation, but they are clearly getting a service different than what they had paid for. So they have good grounds to demand a refund. The airlines will likely refuse because they have been, been refusing constantly to issue refunds to everybody. But then you can actually try to do a chargeback on your credit card, possibly go to small claims courts. So you do have remedies. It won't be a simple remedy. But one thing is clear, don't fly. In this situation, especially if they want to cram people like sardines next to each other, it is not safe to fly, in my opinion. Do we uh, see um, any other instances like this, uh, you know, in other countries or are we kind of leading the charge as far as, uh, you know, filling every seat? I think we led the charge, although it seems that some airlines in the United States are also following course. But, you know, when you look at the United States situation with COVID-19, I don't think that it's a model to follow. They seem to be having one of the most critical situations, the worst situation in the world. And uh, Canada has done fairly well. So I don't understand why anybody with the right mind would want to sacrifice the success we had, the achievements we had, for the sake of 3% of the economy. So that 97% of the economy wouldn't suffer and will suffer if we have a second wave should not have to pay for the profitability of this 3%, which are the airline industry and the travel industry. Gabor, I know uh, they're they're insisting that we wear masks, and I keep hearing, you know, every time they they try to justify the fact that they're opening up all those middle seats, that the HEPA air filters on the planes will control any airborne bacteria. But clearly, there are people who are still concerned, and I would say the majority of Canadians about this. 
they have a good reason, to my knowledge, to be concerned. I'm not buying the theory that a HEPA filter can control an infectious disease on board an aircraft. That strikes me as ludicrous. The, we need to think back about what our provincial uh, public health professionals are telling us. We trust them because they got us through our in most provinces without major outbreaks. We did have some outbreak, but if you look at British Columbia, if you look at Nova Scotia, uh, those are responses did very well. And in BC, you could hear already yesterday from uh, officials, provincial officials, that they have some serious concerns about what the federal government is allowing to do and what the airlines are doing. So what we're being told is that we have to do physical distancing even when we are outside. So until such time as there is evidence that somehow the aircraft's air quality and environment is better Mm -hmm. than simply being outside, I'm not going to accept the airline's argument. Okay, well, thank you. If outside, you need to stand two meters apart Mm -hmm. and you need the same distance on the aircraft. Seems so. Yeah, and this is going to be a discussion that I think a lot of people are going to want to weigh in on. Thank you so much, Gabber. Thank you very much for having me. That's Gabber Lutkatch, airline passengers' rights advocate. 608 on the morning news. Uh, yes, yeah, some U.S. states return to previous restrictions. The slow uh, coronavirus cases, yeah, we're hearing rollbacks of some of the previous openings and some new restrictions in place as those cases are reaching records. Uh, we're going to get the details on how big of a deal this is with Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. How many states are we talking about? It seems like over the past few weeks, we've talked about a couple of states here and there. But from what I'm understanding, uh, the uh, numbers and the list of states is growing. The numbers are growing uh, and they range anywhere from between just over a dozen to upwards of 16, possibly 17. uh, And they are spanning the entire country now. You know, we're seeing these big resurgence of cases, mostly in the U.S. South and the U.S. Southwest. But even uh, into the Northeast now, we heard from the New Jersey uh, governor uh, saying that he intends to start clawing back as well, fearing that there could be some kind of uptick in cases uh, after the warning shots were fired from the South. So this is now kind of turning into a cross-country, not real closure, but clawback, uh, fearing that the numbers are going to continue to rise from the numbers that they're at right now. And yet, Reggie, it seems, and maybe it's just what we see on the news coming out of the states, that Americans don't really care because they're just gathering in large groups everywhere by the looks of things. This is really a concern for health experts in the country. And notably, when you say that people seem like they don't care, it really is a younger population who is kind of, uh, you know, pushing aside the warnings and the concerns of this virus. Uh, Beaches are set to close in the Miami area for the upcoming long weekend in the United States. Uh, And most of the complaints are coming from people under the age of 35, saying that they don't understand why they're being, uh, you know, barred access from the ocean uh, because they feel that if they get sick, they're simply not going to be as, you know, bad off as somebody is who is elderly. Uh, And we've now seen that a growing number of people, notably in Arizona and Houston, who are winding up in ICUs are under the age of 35. Mm. The Arizona case I was reading yesterday was in the afternoon or very late morning where the governor there had mentioned the shutdowns beginning at 8 p.m. last night of these large, uh, you know, gathering spaces like nightclubs. I was surprised at how quick something like that came down. It uh, underscores to me the seriousness and how it's being uh, looked at by governors. 
Yeah, and notably, it's because of what's happening when it comes to hospitalizations. You know, these states all watched what happened in New York a couple of months ago when hospitals were so overwhelmed that they were having to build field hospitals and then bring in refrigerated trucks to deal with the number of people that were dying from COVID-19. Uh, states are now realizing that they don't have hospital sizes the size of New York's, uh, and they're running out of ICU beds, if not already have uh, breached their capacity. So they're trying to do what they can as quickly as possible. It's worth noting, though, that there are people that are pushing back against the governor. A number of Republicans uh, in Arizona have quickly called out the governor for overstepping what they see are, are, are his limits and boundaries uh, and saying that, you know, people are suffering consequences. But at the end of the day, that's just towing the president's line, uh, not paying attention to the actual health concerns from COVID-19. And Reggie, I was going to ask you that. Does it seem like we're, we're seeing these closures again flaring up and along political lines? Is there Can you see the states that are closing or not, you know, in terms of Republicans and Democrats? Yeah, look, a lot of the states that are enacting new closures right now are Republican states, but it's worth noting again that these are the states that reopened really quickly and didn't really follow that gated criteria that the CDC had put out, saying you needed to have X number of cases over a, a short number of days. Uh, now we're seeing the repercussions throughout Texas and throughout Florida, notably that these governors in these states who are Republicans are also now wearing masks when they're out in public, and this is leaving the president as kind of the odd man out when it comes to how to deal with this virus, or at least protect protect yourself and others. You mentioned the beach closures in Florida and how that's a big deal with the holiday weekend coming up. I think a lot of the times here in Canada, we lose sight of the fact because our Canada Day is a one and done day. But so many people take the entire week off. This is a big deal. And to a certain extent, this will be the first major test, I would think, uh, you know, during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, look, it's a big deal down here. It, it, this is a holiday that will span several days. And look, you know, even heading into the holiday, I was away for a couple of days last week uh, on a beach, kind of in a self isolation style condo where I didn't actually go outside. I just needed to get out of D.C. Uh, and the beach was already packed. There was very little social distancing taking place anywhere uh, that I could see. And this is something that we already saw once happen during the Memorial Day weekend when cases started to surge after groups started hanging out uh, in Arkansas. There is a very big fear that if these beaches do stay open outside of the areas uh, in southern Florida, that there's a risk that the numbers that are already catastrophic in the Sunshine State are only going to continue to rise. And I think as we see those numbers continue to rise, most Canadians are quite happy the border remains closed at this point. Hey, Reggie, while we have you, just wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, President Trump and this uh, the Russian bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Now it seems, though, he said he was not you know, updated on it and given a brief that he was, in fact. How is that well, shaping look, up? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion about this story. The president saying that he wasn't briefed, then saying intelligence officials did talk to him about it, but said that it didn't warrant any kind of briefing. But then the press secretary comes out yesterday and the press said the president still hasn't been briefed on it. Yet White House officials then went and briefed Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill yesterday about a situation they say is false. So there's a lot of confusion uh, about what the actual story is. There are a growing number of questions, though, as to what the president may have known uh, if he was briefed on this, which we're hearing reports that it could have been upwards of a year ago now, what the president did and didn't do to protect uh, service members overseas and why he has uh, kind of extended an olive branch uh, numerous times now to Vladimir Putin, whether or not it's bringing him back in the G8, whether or not it's trying to coordinate uh, another face-to-face -face with him. There are a growing number of questions about the safety of Americans that are now serving overseas because the commander-in-chief appears to not be paying attention to the briefings that he's being given.
You know, we uh, spoke, I think it was last week, uh, middle of last week or to the end of last week, how the numbers, when uh, Biden is concerned, come in, uh, almost a 14% lead. And again, that was a few days ago. Now we're hearing word, and this is from Republican insiders, that Donald Trump could consider dropping out of the 2020 presidential election if poll uh, poll numbers don't uh, improve. In other words, if he doesn't think he has a a clear path, uh, you know, to stay in the White House, that he would pull the pin. Do you think this is a possibility at all? I mean, look, this is a conversation that is starting to run around GOP circles only because they're quickly running out of time to try and find somebody to put on the ticket if they don't simply just go to Mike Pence. You know, the president has a very fragile ego. We've seen this for the last four years and we see how well uh, how much he pays attention to the polls. And now seeing that he's now struggling behind Joe Biden, not just nationally, but in key swing states as well across the Midwest and down to the south. This is a problem for the president and a problem for Republicans. It's hard to see the president fully dropping out of the race considering that he's just so enamored with the job and he, he really revels in the glory of being the president. Uh, but if these numbers continue, this is something that, that, that the country is going to be watching very closely uh, because if the president were to drop out, you know, that kind of throws a big wrench into the plans but could also then bolster Republicans as they try to find somebody to replace Trump who could better go up against Joe Biden. Just can't imagine that even happening at this late time in the game. But any word from uh, Biden's camp on a, a, who, who might run with him or he might name to the vice presidential role? No, they're being really cagey about the information on this. You know, it's the same list that we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks now. They're trying to get through the vetting process. But, you know, we said this last week, they're very quickly running out of time with the de- uh, with the uh, the convention set to take place virtually in less than 60 days now. Uh, there are still a, a good number of, uh, of high contenders on the list, namely Kamala Harris, Val Dem- uh, possibly Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta. But again, it's a list with still too many people on there when you're solely looking for one. Reggie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 642 now and a campaign dubbed Stop Hate for Profit has seen multiple big brands pull their advertising from Facebook, saying Facebook has not done enough to keep racist, false and dangerous content off its platform. With all the details on this movement, we're joined this morning by social media industry commentator, consultant and host of the Geek Out podcast, Matt Navarra. Hi, Matt. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. So does you know companies like Coca-Cola, Starbucks, North Face, does pulling their ads for a month from Facebook actually do anything? Uh, it, it makes a statement, clearly. And it, it certainly brings attention to uh, a cause that uh, a lot of people have concerns about in terms of these kind of wanting to stop some of these issues around, uh, you know, uh, hate speech and the policies that Facebook has that people are not comfortable with. But in terms of actual revenue problems for the company, any long-term damage, I'm still not convinced that this is uh, is going to be what's going to be the outcome of it in the end. Matt, you know, as uh, somebody uses uh, the social media platforms, including Facebook, uh, I use it for fun and uh, for some business here and there. But I'm wondering, do you know, as an insider, do they already have some governors in place uh, to keep this sort of content when it comes to, um, you know, uh, racist and, uh, you know, hate, um, uh, you know, content on the platform itself? Is there something in place already? Well, they've got a number of things in place that they've had for, for some time that they keep on enhancing to try and tackle this this and many other problems which involve hate speech or, or any other kind of uh, divisive uh, content that people are putting up there. Um, but it's really, I think this is more geared around the, the policies that Facebook has rather than their capability to, to tackle it. You know, they use AI to kind of automatically detect some of this stuff to remove it before it becomes a problem or before people see it. And obviously they respond to requests to remove 
remove things if they deem it to have breached their community standards. But I think a large part of the concern here is, is, um, is Facebook's policies in this area where they should be. And there's a, a large group of people and advertisers as well that, that don't think it is. So, Matt, what does this group involved with the Stop Hate for Profit, what do they want to happen on Facebook and what do they want to see in the end? Well, ultimately, they're, they're trying to drive, uh, first of all, attention to the problem or to make people more aware of it, which I don't think they, you know, they need much more because people are very aware of this problem, I think. Um, they're a bit more vague around specific um, changes, but certainly they're looking to see Facebook show that it's doing more and can do more and will do more to stop some of these problems with um, with hate speech on the platform, whether it's the removal of it or to have uh, stricter guidelines around what people can and cannot put up there. Uh, the question is whether Facebook will um, bow to the pressure. And at the moment, there's been very little movement on them. And I think that one of their um, executives has said that they will not uh, adjust policy due to revenue pressures. In other words, you know, keep on pushing us, but we're not going to do it just because you're putting this pressure on us. So uh, at the moment, they're still holding firm. Is Facebook the lone target of the big three between Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter? Are they the, the only ones that are having action taken against them? Well, Facebook, of course, they own WhatsApp, they own Instagram, have a lot of different platforms that people sometimes don't even realize. But they are the kind of uh, sort of core focus in, in this pack, you know, thing that's being tackled by brands pulling their advertising. But what we've noticed is that there are some brands that are not just saying we're boycotting Facebook for a month. There's others that are being a bit more kind of broad and saying we're not going to advertise on social media for a period of time to make it, you know, a bigger statement about what they're doing. So although Facebook is the focus on, on this particular um, story, um, it is a wider question around these platforms and how, it's how easy they can be managed by those that own them to prevent some of this hate speech and the many other problems and concerns that people have with with social media more generally. Matt, do you think there are politics at play in what's going on with Facebook right now? Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. You know, we're talking about one of the largest, most successful companies in the world, one of the biggest tech companies in the world. It's involved heavily in, in, in our daily lives. It, you know, it impacts um, you know, how people vote or don't vote. Uh, and there's already big discussions and, and upset with the way that Facebook's um, set up its policy for whether it will remove posts by um, President Trump. So undoubtedly behind the scenes there's question marks as to what is the real reason they're holding firm on some of these policies or why they have these policies um as to whether we'll get to the true you know insight as to what what the cause of it is is there something more uh, nefarious at play i don't think we'll truly know but certainly without doubt that you know there's there is politics and, and i think there always will be especially when there's money money involved at this level thanks for your time this morning matt there you have it. Incredible. You like the sounds of that, I do. It's beautiful. Very cool. Rev52 has created a full virtual performance of O Canada. Yeah, it debuted today, as a matter of fact. So to tell us more about what makes this unique, we have artistic director of Rev52, John Morgan, on the line. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We'll get to the, that beautiful sounding anthem. Just played a snippet, of it, a snippet of it for the listeners. But for those uninitiated, what is Rev52? 
Uh, well, Red 52 is a uh, vocal group here in Calgary. Uh, they've been around since 1952, uh, believe it or not, which is where the name comes from. Um, and uh, it's a 50-member group, roughly, and uh, uh, we deliver shows, uh, usually two or three shows a year and a whole bunch of smaller performances as well throughout the year. Are these professional musicians and singers, John, or could Andrew and I join <laughs> with our bird-like voices? <laughs> I'm sure you don't have bird-like voices, but uh, it's it's a real mix. You know, we have some people that are in music theater in Calgary as well, um, semi-professionals, and uh, but we have, I mean, mostly amateurs as well. It's an addition group, uh, so people perform, uh, prepare uh, solos for us, and we we do stuff. Um, you know, pop and rock genres for the most part as well. So. It's like Calgary's own glee, it feels like. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, we're uh, uh, also, we perform with band as well a bit. We don't we don't have, you know, the musical polish of a glee video, say, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know this what, one might become close. Yeah, I don't know about that because I've seen uh, several performances mm-hmm. and you guys have it going on. But what, what I take away from Rev 52 is it's not your average ensemble or, or your average choir. Is that something you strive for to do things differently? Yeah, we do. We're definitely trying to... Uh, engage engage with our community in, in a big way and uh, and deliver performances that, that have a message behind it, for sure. Well, John, talk to us about uh, this performance of O Canada. It's a beautiful version, a lovely rendition, and people, are we able to all go and check it out now on YouTube? They are, yeah. It's on, up on our page, our YouTube page for Red 52, also on our Facebook page. But uh, this is a real um, all-Calgary affair um, and uh, a great uh, way to celebrate Canada Day as a Calgarian for sure. Uh, we have uh, Richard Harrison, who's a Governor, George, uh, Governor General award-winning poet. Um, he wrote this unbelievable uh, prelude for the anthem, and it reflects on some of the past glories of Canada and also says, hey, these are, maybe there's some things we shouldn't have done and we need to move forward in a new way on this. Uh, we were also very fortunate to have a a uh, member of the Cree Nation. Her name is Akina. She sings in the group. And uh, she gifted us with this translation of O Canada um, in Cree. And it's really haunting and, and extremely beautiful. Um, then we also have uh, two French artists, uh, uh, also both from Calgary, one of whom, Renelle Ray, was uh, nominated for the Franco Francophone Artist of the Year. Um, and then it ends with Justine Terrell. And anybody who's been to a, a Grey Cup, sorry, not a Grey Cup game, but a Stampeders game, uh, we'll know Justine. Um, she's an amazing um, artist, uh, and she has a very unique heritage as well. She's Blackfoot and Jamaican in heritage. Uh, so we're we're looking for some diversity in our in in the group as well, and to to highlight that. John, you know, doing something different and original like this is one thing, but uh, bringing it together online. Can you tell us about those challenges? Uh, doing something virtual like this has anything like this ever been done within Rev Fifty Two? Well, this is our seventh video, but this is definitely on a bigger scale than we've gone. We're 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 collaborating with this one, and um, but there's a lot of challenges. So we started this to um, as a way just to get together after COVID nineteen. It's been tough for choirs and groups um, to to meet, obviously, and and singing is now uh, a very dangerous activity. Uh, I think hockey might uh, start up before singing does, which uh, <laughs> you know. I don't. I don't know what that says about hockey. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the uh, so uh, we we submit our videos. We record them. People record them in their homes and they, on their cell phones. Usually, submit the videos and and we put it all together as a um, audio and and the video and put it into this package. But it's very difficult to do because when I'm meeting with them online, we can't. Uh, I can't 
hear them. Um, I, I play the tracks for them, and I, I have to hope that the, that uh, they're getting it, and and uh, and then I find out when they when they submit it, and and. Uh, so far, it's been quite successful. It's gorgeous. Uh, as we play out of our interview with you, John, mm-hmm. with a little Rev 52 doing their 2020 edition of O Canada, how do people find it on YouTube? Uh, it probably best to go youtube.com slash Rev 52, R-E-V-V 52, all one word. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Perfect. Thank you. Happy Canada Day. That's John Morgan, Rev 52's artistic director. And here's a little bit of the music. Canada version and to be able to put that many people together virtually and then come up with that so uh go to youtube rev 52 r-e-v-v 52 to find that version of O canada that is outstanding you can play uh, it for all your guests tomorrow at your uh, canada day party uh, yeah there's going to be like 12 of us it's a canada day slash birthday uh, party extravaganza do it i have trouble editing our little uh, clip on facebook every day and it's uh, (laughs) top and tail like just cut the top and the bottom off can't imagine organizing putting something like that together amazing incredible Hey, um, I wanted to mention a couple of little things, but this one is very important because we love donuts. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't, right? McDonald's just added the ultimate sweet treat to their permanent menu. Yep. They had had them temporarily, but they've now got those little uh, little baby donuts. Lil donuts, they call well, them. Lil, with an apostrophe. Yep. Uh, that will be a permanent option on the menu. They've got uh, five different flavors, including the maple caramel, which maybe is something you get for Canada Day tomorrow. I did some digging because we've been talking donuts a lot this week yes. because of, of course, the Calgary Stampede selling those little donuts, uh, the uh, mini donuts, if you will, mm-hmm. at Stampede Park. But for 24 it's... $21. $21 for a bag of 24 donuts. You'll be able to drive onto the grounds. Mm-hmm. You'll have paid and pre-ordered your donuts. They'll throw them in the window and you will drive and continue your, on your way because you're not allowed to stop on the ground. Of course not. But you know what? Remember the controversy last year or a couple of years ago that the original vendors were called Those Little Donuts. Yes. That's like a trademark brand. They were available, made available, I think, in uh, Okotoks and High River last year. Well, guess what? They're back. Oh, really? They have the website, thoselittledonuts.ca. Now, I'm hearing that they're, you can pick them up online and pick up and just take away at the Okotoks Agricultural Society. Okay. Um, I've got How the much? up-to-date info. Well, uh, let me take a look at the uh, what size you want. Uh, let's see. As here. many as possible. What, what's the biggest amount they have? Oh, I'm just waiting. Because we know the, 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 the donuts okay. through the Stampede right. drive through 24 donuts, yep. $21. They have a three-bag item order. Yeah. Three bags, that's 45 little donuts. Okay. 45 for okay. 15 bucks. Mm. The two bags, that's 30 little donuts for a 10 spot for $10. Mm. So when you're paying 21 for 24 and you want that, these are certified carnival donuts, there's the value to be had. Uh, down in Okotoks, and you search uh, those little know. donuts. 
I love that Stampede is, uh, you know, doing stuff to try and keep us in the spirit, even though we're not allowed to have the official Stampede, but still getting lots of texts. And I posted on social media yesterday and people are like, uh, no, thank you. That's a bit rich right now with people in a difficult time. Most people have lost their jobs. They're Mm -hmm. taking a government handout right now and 21 bucks for mini donuts. A couple dollars. Well, and I look at this, it's up to date uh, today from four to eight and Canada Day uh, from two to eight down in Okotoks.